you're listening to the Edgerton Life Podcast. I'm Jess Lampy, and I am here today talking with uh, Mary McNaughton. Mary, thank you for taking time out to chat with me today. You are welcome. It's my pleasure. I want to start a little ways back to, to get to know how you got to know Andy. Well, actually, I never actually met Andy, but one of Andy's friends from Kansas City, his friend Jordan Stumpleman, for a while lived here in Chicago, and he and I worked together in a program that was in schools, and Jordan and I became very good friends, and as he traveled around, we maintained our friendship, and he messaged me and said, you know, I have this friend and he has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and um, he's trying to get this website going and he would like people who have had cancer experiences write some things for the website and would you do this? And at first I thought, oh, I don't really want to do that, but it's like, okay, Jordan, it's for you. I'll do this. And so I wrote a little something. And then all of a sudden I was hearing from Andy and Andy said, and I believe you at the same time pretty much made some sort of comment about or sent the email how you wanted to do these podcasts. And so that's kind of how I was introduced to this idea with Andy. Okay. Yeah, I had written an email out, I want to say back, was that 2016? We were trying to coordinate when Andy had a little bit more energy, and then okay. unfortunately we weren't able to connect anybody at the time because chemo got in the way. Exactly. But I did actually have conversations with Andy on the phone. We had a, some, a, some texting conversations. I also was a... Uh, Facebook friend, and I would read all his posts, etc., and make comments, etc. So I got to know Andy pretty well, <laughs> even though I had never actually met face to face. So I think you were the first person I've talked to that was on the list as being a, a cancer survivor. I haven't had the chance to read what you had shared with him. Do you mind talking a little bit about it? No, I don't mind at all. I'm, I think this is the reason Andy wanted me and the fact that, you know, his friend Jordan suggested me. Back in 1999, I was diagnosed with third stage small cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And at that time, I was asymptomatic. The only way I knew that I had had this lymphoma is that all of a sudden this lump appeared in my groin and I was seeing a gastroenterologist because just a few months before I had been diagnosed with celiac disease, which is an intolerance to gluten. At a doctor's appointment, I, somebody asked me, well, you know, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm fine, except I had this lump here and it didn't hurt. It was having no problem. But long story short, the gastroenterologist immediately referred me to have CAT scans, biopsies, and referred me to an oncologist. And so when I met this oncologist, he said, well, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to be very honest with you, and your type of lymphoma is at this time incurable. 
But don't panic because it's pretty dormant. It's not going anywhere. But, uh, you know, uh, there are things just around the corner that could help you. But he said, I don't want to have to do anything. I don't want to have to do any chemo or anything like that because you have to have a bone marrow transplant in the future. And to do chemo would be senseless because it wouldn't do you any good at this time. And it could get in the way of a transplant later on. So, yeah. And at the time, my husband and daughter, who was 11 years old, they were in the room. But my oncologist was just a wonderful, wonderful guy. He was so hopeful and was absolutely brilliant. And he immediately decided that maybe he would test to see if either of my sisters would be a match for me as far as my bone marrow went, because he decided he wanted to harvest my stem cells. At that time, this was not necessarily a common thing. Well, when he found out that neither sister was a match, he decided that you got to be your own donor. So Rush Medical Center had new machines that would harvest stem cells. And so he sent me down there. And for two days, I lay on my back and they took all the blood out of my body and then eventually put it back in. And they got three bags of stem cells and they stored them at Rush. And so I went on and, you know, he told me when the sun is shining, get up and enjoy your day. And when it's raining, get up and enjoy your day and don't worry about this because I'm watching you. I was a teacher. I continued to work. I lived a normal life. I had numerous bone marrow biopsies. He examined me. Um, And as it happened, I went till 2005, and then all of a sudden, the lymphoma began to move. I had a lump in my neck, as well as the other places, and there apparently there was something around the heart forming, and so he says, well, now I got to do something. But at, by that time, there were drugs that had not been approved, you know, six years before. So I was given this, these drugs, and had chemo with these new drugs. And for a while, it pulled me back and I was okay. But then unfortunately, the lymphoma came back. So then another new thing came on the market. And that was a radioactive isotope that would just hunt down the cancer cells and not destroy anything else but the cancer cells. And there was a drug called Zevalin. And so my oncologist, who was really a specialist in hematology, he, together with a nuclear oncologist and a physicist, worked up a concoction of the Zevalin. It was injected into my body (laughs) by the doctor who was wearing a moon suit. And the physicist was in the room across the room, and there was a nurse there, and I'm wearing regular clothes. And they inject this radioactive material in me, and that was wonderful. Everything was fine as long as it was in my body. And again, I was teaching at this time, and that was fine, and then it came back. So then I was in my last year of teaching after a full career, 
And my doctor said, well, I'm, I want to do some chemo, nothing that's going to ruin anything for you. He said, but I want to get you retired. So he gave me a type of chemo called COP. And so I ended my teaching career. Um, at that point, I had over two years of sick leave. So I took those final months off because I was feeling pretty bad. And my doctor didn't want me exposed to germs from students in the high school. Right, because that would be a busy, uh, any sort of school environment. You're, you're basically exposing yourself to all sorts of vectors. Uh, correct. And at that point, I was teaching some very difficult students, etc. And I didn't feel all that hot either. So I was home and somewhat calling in and somebody was in for me and, you know, teaching from home and doing that kind of stuff. But at least I, I, I was not faced with these kids. And then I went back and closed out, you know, 33 years of teaching and kind of ended my career. That was in 2007, the following January of 2008. All of a sudden, the lymphoma was kind of everywhere. It was starting to be in my bone marrow. It was, you know, things were popping out all over. And he basically said, okay, now it's time. I got you retired. And now you can, you know, you can concentrate on getting well. And again, this was a whole new thing at the time. He sent me down to Rush where they had my cells stored. And he basically hooked me up down there with one of the top hematologists in the country that worked at Rush Medical Center, and also um, the head of the uh, transplant unit. They were my doctors. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, he, you know, this guy was wonderful, and he knew these people. And in fact, this Dr. Vanugapal, who was this really big muckety-muck down there, said, you know, I've known you, and I've known you for years. He said, I've known your case. Because my doctor always said, hey, you know, I'm not God, and I might have an idea of what would be good for you. He says, but I never do anything without conferring with other people. And for years, he had been conferring with Stanford. He had been conferring with these people down at Rush, with whom he had worked many years before as well. So I went in there, and believe it or not, they, after nine years of my stem cells being frozen, they unfroze them. And they were very vital. Um, I had to go through some severe chemo prior to the transplant. They gave me this stuff called rice chemo. And they said, if you can do this, you can do, you can do a transplant. And it was one of these situations where they wanted to reduce the tumors as much as possible before the transplant. And so they would put me in the hospital for a week, giving me different drugs and then I'd be home for two weeks, and then they'd do it again. And we went through three rounds of that. And then Rush Medical Center um, did all kinds of tests. Uh, I had to also talk to a psychologist down there to see if I was in the mental state to, that would be able to do this. And they basically told me that, that I was really lucky that my oncologist had been so brilliant to think of doing this, that he actually was able to look into the future 
Because in the past, it wasn't certain that a cure or this type of treatment would exist. He just exactly. took a bet saying, hey, and the fact I'm going to say this. He said, I'm going to harvest your cells. At, at that time, he said, I'm harvesting your cells. And I mean, he did not waste any time at all. You know, I was seeing him when we realized that my sisters were not a match. Then it's like, okay, well, we're going to do this as an insurance uh is insurance in our back pocket just in case and he did nothing all those years that would harm me he was just the most wonderful guy in the world and he kept saying to me well you know if you feel that somebody else would do better you will not hurt my feelings and it's like are you kidding me but you know but this is the kind of guy he was and not only that but he had a great sense of humor he was not doom and gloom he was very hopeful but I had seen him when he had had to give people bad news. I knew that he was a straight shooter, but that if he had a plan, that was a good thing. I also found out, now we're get, kind of getting into the realm of politics, but I had my cells harvested back when Bill Clinton was still president. And then the following year, Bush became president. I never would have ever, ever, ever been able to have this done because there at that point I don't know if you remember but there was no stem cell you know stem cell research was just totally nil and in fact uh Rush that's right there was there was a there was a political movement against it it was viewed as some sort of bridge too far morally I mean, they didn't understand that, you know, it had nothing to do with abortions or any, you know, it was so stupid. And Rush said to me, you know, you are lucky. This would never have happened had it been a year later. They, Rush was no longer allowed to harvest and store. They were able to harvest, but then they would clean out the cells and then put them back in. But the cells that I had that were being stored, and I think they told me at the time, they had about 110 people who had cells there. And I remember when I was having my cells harvested, I asked the doctor in the lab who was really in charge of this, I said, you know, how long are these cells? How long do they last? And he said, well, theoretically forever. But he said, we don't know because this is all new. So, I mean, it was one of those right place, right time, right year, right everything, you know? So I had a bone marrow transplant and they basically killed me off and then unfroze each bag of my cells very slowly and injected them back. And they said, this is your second birthday because basically we killed you off and now we're bringing you back. And just like a baby, my body had to accept food again. I had to have all my vaccinations over a course of two years after the transplant. Um, I was not allowed to have windows open. Dust was not supposed to fly anywhere. I lived at uh, Rush Medical Center for about a month. There was a week before the transplant and then about, you know, four weeks after. And they were very shocked that I engrafted with these new cells so quickly so that I 
didn't have to spend longer. And what was really interesting is that uh, they wanted me to have 80% immunity when I got home before they would send me home. But um, the struggle of getting over the transplant was much worse once I got home. Um, and they had pretty much predicted that. I, I, you know, they pretty much told me what it was that I, I uh, was going to undergo. And um, so about day 23 after the transplant, that's when things really, you know, kind of hit the fan for me. <laughs> so, and, um, and it was to the point where it was hard to even walk across the room. Uh, but slowly but surely, I was able to get better. And then, of course, because I'd had this wonderful doctor oncologist here, they, after so long, Rush just said, well, you know, he knows what to do with you. It probably took me a good year to kind of get back to be myself. Because I have celiac disease and my stomach is always my downfall, because the bad bacteria grew back faster than the good bacteria, I had to go and back to uh, my gastroenterologist and they had to, you know, work with me to get my stomach back in shape, etc. You know, I am now 11 years in remission, happy to be here. <laughs> I kind of think, wow, this was really something, you know. At the time when I was diagnosed, my daughter was 11 years old and the doctor was, you know, she was in the room because, the, you know, my doctor asked me, well, you know, do you want your daughter here? Do you want her to go out? And I said, well, no. I said, I think the unknown is more frightening than the known. So I, I want her here to hear what you have to say. And so he talked about the fact that, yeah, he didn't want to have to do anything uh, and that the longer he could wait, the better, because there were all these drugs that were on the you know, market that would be just coming in right around the corner. And he talked about the potential of what would happen if I had to have a bone marrow transplant. So when my husband asked my daughter, okay, did you understand that? She said, well, yeah. She said that someday, possibly when I'm in college, you're going to call me and you're going to say mom's in the hospital. And that's pretty much what happened. She was a sophomore in college. Did she say that in that way? Yes, absolutely. Wow. I'm impressed. I don't even know if when I was 11, I had a concept of college, let alone all this. This is that's amazing. It was pretty amazing. And so we always we all knew it, there was always the elephant in the room, but there wasn't. And again, I I followed directions very well. And so I tried to live life like my doctor told me to do. And, you know, he was just wonderful. He was always there. He tested me. And he always said, don't worry. I'm responsible for you. I will watch you. And but when something needed to happen, it needed to happen. And I trusted him. And he was just wonderful, you know. And uh, sadly, last uh, May, he retired and he told me, he said, well, you know, he said, when I retire, don't worry, I will find someone younger, but really good to watch over you. And so he, he did, he gave me this guy and, and I see this guy and actually he's right 
close to me where I live and the guy's just wonderful. But, you know, I still miss my, my doctor, but you know, it is what it is. And, you know, he has to retire too. (laughs) You know, I'm just amazed. I mean, like it's easy to think of life as a constant progression towards improvements and getting better. And, it's it's a miracle in some sense that you given such sage advice early on to just hey to get your stem cells harvested and preserved for later this will help you out it, but your scenario is almost one like it it's more like the game frogger where like there was an opening you had in order to get your stem cells harvested preserved and then a benefit down the road later on narrow like gaps that you were able to navigate through in order to get to where you are today It was a magical moment. And the fact that my gastroenterologist just happened to kind of, when I said, oh, this lump here, and he was just wonderful and he didn't mess around. Within two weeks, I had had CAT scans, a biopsy, and the number of this doctor in my hand. I mean, just all these wonderful little things happened along the way. There's a part of me that, yeah, I, every time I think about it, I, I suck air a little bit, you know, but you can't really think that way. And just before I went in for my bone marrow transplant, um, I was supposed to have a uh, bone marrow biopsy because they were always digging in into my bone marrow. And um, I remember I had tickets to see Buddy Guy at Legends, and my doctor wanted me to have this bone marrow biopsy. And I said, you know... I've got these tickets to Buddy Guy. Could we wait just a couple days? He goes, sure. You know, so <laughs> I remember it was in January and it was a snowy January. And I went and, and we I went to Legends because Buddy Guy is in his club only about one one month. And I was there and got to see Buddy Guy. And then knowing the next day I was going to go and have this bone marrow biopsy and begin this whole thing. I still now I, I with this new doctor, he was seeing me every three months, but now he's seeing me every six months and I still have my port and they still flush it and he still does blood work and things of that nature. And he said, well, I got to tell you, I cannot officially say that you've been cured, but it's been 11 years. So unless something comes up, I'm not going to do any more scans or anything like that we're just going to assume that everything's fine and what's also nice is this guy's just darling and he's young but he's also uh, a specialist in geriatric medicine although I'm only 67 and he tells me that's not you're not really the geriatric that we're looking at but (laughs) it's nice to know that he can kind of take me (laughs) into my (laughs) older ages and um (laughs) so (laughs) 67's the new 30 uh absolutely absolutely so uh, you know but I do remember listening to you and Andy when you did a podcast with him and he talked to you about his ordeal when he was first diagnosed and how awful, how basically a lab tech was telling him that he had, you know, four stage pancreatic cancer or something, you know, and he was so angry because it was such a shock. And I, and when I had 
heard that podcast, it, it struck me that my situation was almost the opposite of that. Everything just kind of fell into place for me. I thought that for this poor guy, I, I think he was angry because uh, if I remember, uh, his actual doctor wouldn't tell him. And he was going in for something and it was somebody, some, I don't know whether it was a nurse or something said, oh yeah, you've got, you know, you've got pancreatic cancer and you're, you know, you got fourth stage or something like that. And, and he was just, just furious that they would treat him in such a way and that if his doctor wouldn't sit down and talk with him. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Kind yeah, of no, I do. I don't. Um, I don't recall if the his doctor was like not disclosing it. I think that one of the techs accidentally let it slip, and it wasn't done in a artful or graceful way to be respectful of of the weight that carries with the individual who gets the diagnosis. I yeah. do remember him yes. being very, very frustrated by that and feeling completely blindsided by it. Yeah. So, you know, at the time, as when I listened to that, I thought, oh, man, you know, I, again, so lucky that I had all these wonderful people. I mean, I, again, I because I had I I'd had this relationship and again, almost a 20 year relationship with this doctor. And I had seen him through thick and thin and I have a had actually seen him, you know, have to tell family, well, no, I agree with the diagnosis and I'll help with the help with the hospice situation. And, you know, I, I knew that if he had a plan, it was good. I also knew that he was going to always give it to me straight. But if there was some hope that he would he would pass that on to me. And again, you know. You know, he was always saying, well, how's your daughter doing? And we were talking, always talking about, well, the grand, how are your grandkids and blah, 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 you know, but, <laughs> um, but I, you know, as a doctor, he was amazing. And again, uh, when I went down to Rush, Dr. Vanugapal was like this big guru and he was wonderful and the people under him were wonderful. And then the head of the transplant unit had just come from, I believe, California and had taken over. And this guy, this Dr. Fung was just wonderful. He was funny, come in and joke. And I, I mean, I had a wonderful, wonderful experience for as bad as the experience had to be. But, you know, in my head, I always thought, well, you know, not to say that it was a picnic, but, uh, you know, but I was glad that my doctor realized that uh, he didn't want to have my pension get messed up. He, he wanted to get me retired and he did that. And, um, you know, and, uh, so, you know, it was, you know, it was just wonderful. That's pretty amazing that he was that insightful too, that he, he's not just thinking of, I mean, cause there's a lot to be thinking about. I'm sure as, as a doctor who's trying to keep track of state of the art treatments, the possibilities of the future, he's also considering your pension. Yeah, it was, it was amazing that he was so insightful and so kind. So you, you spoke with, you said, uh, in addition to kind of connecting with him, you also spoke with him several times on the phone. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the first time that we were supposed to have our podcast, I think you had given me your number and Andy's number, et cetera. 
And somewhere along the line, I didn't get the call, didn't get the call. And I waited about a half an hour. And I think you kind of said, hey, if you don't hear from us for a certain period of time, then. And so I called Andy. And what happened was he had gone for chemo. And he lay down for a short nap. And he woke 16 hours later. Yeah. Uh, He answered the phone and said, I'm so sorry. And somehow or other, you know, I could tell he was groggy, et cetera, et cetera. And then we just started to talk. And we were talking about all kinds of stuff. Um, Politics. Uh, It was a week before the election. And uh, and Andy and I had this wonderful conversation about, okay, you know, this is what the people are looking for and blah, 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 blah. And, and so, you know, because, of course, he didn't know me, but, you know, politically, I'm pretty liberal. And, um, and obviously, he was too. And I definitely wasn't a Trump person. And, um, and so he talked about being a political science major for a while and all this kind of stuff. And we had this wonderful conversation. And he had said to me, he said, well, you know, um, I really want to do this podcast. But he said, I'm kind of not in any shape right now to do it. You know, let's kind of make an appointment later to do this. And, um, so, uh, it's like, well, okay, how about next week, you know, and that would have been the day after the election. And I was served uh, for, for over 10 years, I served as an election judge. And, um, so I was going to do that. And he said, well, you know, yeah, that would be fine. And neither one of us thinking that Donald Trump was actually going to win that election. So we, decided that we would do the podcast the following week and then on that Wednesday we got in touch with one another and he said um I have to go see my doctor I I can't do this podcast I guess he got ill and who knows if the stress of the election (laughs) didn't uh, cause that and he says I can't believe that we elected Trump and I I said now Andy we didn't elect him some people did, but it wasn't us. So don't don't worry about that. And I said, we'll we'll get this podcast done. We'll do this later because I could pretty much imagine how he felt because I had been there, you know. And he, I understood chemo and I understood. And then he started having you know more chemo and he would. I started reading his Facebook rants. I guess you want to say, and um. And Stream of consciousness writings. <laughs> Although there was, it was, it was really great, especially, I remember one, especially where he talked about people having chemo and having to go to the bathroom and how you were relegated to certain bathrooms, et cetera. And I, oh gosh, I could relate to that. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. So I really enjoyed those things. And I obviously he had a, like a zillion friends, you know, but every once in a while I would make a comment. I'd, I'd like to see what other people had to say. And I'd like to read, you know, what he was doing and how he was feeling. And there I have to say there were some times there were, gosh, you know, it was so positive. I mean, we all knew that his cancer was a, a tough one, but you know, he did so well for so long. And um, 
that you know it it's it's it was a heartbreak um and you know i was i had said to my friend i said you know i kind of understand now computer dating because you can you can get to know somebody merely by reading what they have to say and and when they share what they're thinking and what other people say and how other people are reacting to them so you know I, it's like i really kind of felt i got to know andy just a, he was just a darling person and i felt so bad that at the end of his life he had to struggle for insurance and having to worry about that like who wants to worry about that when you're fighting for your life you know absolutely so i, I you know it, it seems like if somebody's in that situation that's the that's the last thing they should well i'm not sorry not even the last thing they shouldn't have to worry about it Absolutely. Um, what really inspired me is the fact that even down to the last few minutes or days, he was still calling, you know, <laughs> the governor. He was still calling every day about, you know, health care and how could you do this and how would you, why would you do away with it with the Affordable Care Act? And, you know, he was such an activist and he was, and I knew he had to have been feeling awful. It's interesting in in the news recently, the first responders had been going down to D.C. And and I was it somehow echoed kind of what he had been going through, like the initiative that they went through in order to get down there. I, I felt like and Andy was 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 going through that himself, still protesting, still advocating, still trying to make the world a better place. Absolutely. I, you know, just amazing. And I, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, when I read or heard about his parents or, you know, when he would send pictures of he and the kids, you know, on Facebook and make comments and I could bit, put together bits and pieces. And I thought, oh my gosh, these parents, they, these people with these, because Andy's brother also had cancer, did he not? He did. Yeah. And I thought, can you just imagine both of your kids having cancer? And I got the idea that his Andy's parents were these wonderful people, and they were supportive. And they, and I thought, oh my God, what, you know, what that must be like. Because yeah, it's it's definitely it's something that the the whole family goes through, and to just I I can't yeah, Jody's a, a wonderful lady, and I can't. Uh, to be in that situation, not to not just have one of your kids to go through that, but two is, it takes a lot of heart. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, my heart just bled for them as well. And, you know, when I think about, I tried very, very hard not to dwell on the negative with my daughter. Um, and I remember her saying to somebody after my transplant, she said, well, you know, I never felt that my mother wasn't going to get through this, that it was going to be okay. Although I know, I know to this day, she had a lot of anxiety that she did not show me. <laughs> you know, it's like we weren't showing each other the anxiety that we were having. Definitely my husband and my daughter, they were wonderful and they're very supportive of me. Um, and and just you know my sisters and my my mother and dad were actually still alive at the time, um, 
and my mother up until she just died back in 2015. And she said to me at one point, I don't know, she was exp explaining a feeling that she had had that uh, she said, oh, I sometimes feel that I'm watching myself go through these things. And I said, well, you know, when I was in the hospital, I kind of felt the same thing. I, I couldn't believe it was me, and I was going through these experience, and I sometimes felt as if I were watching myself go through the experience. And my mother said to me, gosh, I didn't know that you were that sick. And I said, well, mother, I didn't want you to know that I was that sick, even though she knew that I was. But my parents lived in Pennsylvania, and, of course, I lived here in Chicago, so they didn't actually see the day-to-day my father died suddenly of mesothelioma. He was sick for about a month, and and uh, he must have known he was ill, but he, you know, didn't really let on. And so he, you know, he died um, in two thousand and four, and then I started chemo in two thousand and five. You know, right after, like this following spring. Um, so. Um, you know, he didn't actually know that I had to do that. They did know that I was ill, but, you know, I didn't make a big deal out of it. And uh, and luckily, um, I was able to go back and forth to Pennsylvania for years after my husband retired. He retired in 2010. And so we were able to actually go about once a month for about three days <laughs> to go and make sure she was doing okay. And then we'd drive back. Uh, luckily, I did have a cousin. I had some cousins who lived there, and I had a cousin who was kind of pinch hitting for me when I was in the hospital because I could not take care of my mother's stuff. I couldn't even take care of myself. So. I had to make sure that my mother was taken care of. And so my cousin, she was really great in, you know, making sure that everything was going okay in Pennsylvania while I was in the hospital. So I was very, again, very, very lucky that there were people who were willing to step in and, you know, let me clear my mind so that I could get better. Well, that, that is fantastic. I'm impressed. One of the, one of the things that's been interesting during the course of this project reaching out to people who knew Andy and hearing how everyone else perceived what he was going through. One of the re reoccurring things I've heard is people are impressed with the positivity that he projected about the situation he was in. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting to hear how both that you observed that in, in his life, but that also the way in which both you were demonstrating that and then all your family members throughout your own experience, where your daughter's reflecting positivity to you, uh, you're reflecting positivity to her, you're, you're reflecting positivity to your parents. I, I'm, I'm very impressed that uh, I don't know how you would have done that. I, I don't know how I would have done that. <laughs> I am impressed you went through that. Well, I cannot lie. There were some times in the middle of the night where you'd, you, I would awaken and go, <gasps> I've got cancer, especially at the beginning. And I, I remember this kind of came as a shock because, again, I was asymptomatic. I was not having the fevers. I w of course, I was tired. They said to me, well, are you tired? And I said, well, you know, I get up at 5 every morning and I'm at school or work at by, by 6.45. I teach 
all day. Um, I leave work around, you know, 3.34. I come home, you know, eat great papers all night. And then I go to bed at 10 and I do this five days a week. And then on the weekends, you know, I'm still grading papers and I'm still planning. And oh, yeah, there's the laundry and all of that stuff, too. Um, And I said, so, yeah, I'm tired, but, you know... (laughs) Am I tired, any more tired than anybody else who has that? You know, that's why when this lump appeared, this was a uh, big surprise. And again, I thought maybe it was a swollen gland or something. I (laughs) didn't know. Um, But I'm really happy that I was able to do all those things. But in, especially in the beginning, there were times where it's like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And uh, so when I was first diagnosed... I went in and I, I don't know, somebody asked me and I said, well, I've been diagnosed with lymphoma. And this woman said to me, oh my God, what are you going to do? And it was a first reaction. She was so shocked. And I just said, well, I guess I'm just going to kind of try to live as as I normally (laughs) would do. I mean, I don't know. I'm just going to kind of put one foot in front of the other and, you know. (laughs) No pressure. What are you going to (laughs) do? And I mean, she was just it. And I'm sure and you know, the look of horror on her face and, oh, my God, what are you going to do? And I had known of other people who had died of lymphoma. I mean, you know, at that time, Jackie Kennedy had died of lymphoma. Joey Ramone had died of lymphoma. Um, there was a woman whose husband had it. And he was really ill. And he had died of lymphoma. So, you know, I was, uh, you know, I knew about these people. Um, but I would ask my doctor and he'd say, Jackie Kennedy had da, 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 da type of lymphoma and so-and-so had this type of lymphoma and that's not like yours, you know. So, I mean, again, he was really great. Um, and I learned a lot about lymphoma, like there's actually about 27 types of lymphoma and there's different grades and and all of that. And I was lucky to have low grade at the time, although he never told me that low grade could actually kick into middle or high grade. But, you know, it was probably a good thing that I didn't know that. But uh, yeah, I mean, then you kind of just have to you just have to kind of go on and forget. But uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's interesting. It, you kind of have to learn to live with cancer as well, you know, not that I was Pollyanna and thinking, oh, this is all going to be great all the time, but you have to you have to kind of put it in the back of your mind and just go on with it. At least that's kind of how I dealt with it. it. It was from a perspective of it's not that you like are constantly thinking about, oh, well, things are going to get better or or even from a, a dire way of like, oh, things are going to be terrible. You, you just kind of you just, are you saying you just kind of put it out of sight, out of mind? Well, yeah, I, you pretty much, I pretty much had to do that. I had to make living with cancer just a part of my life, and this is just the part of my life. It's I like see. some people live with diabetes, or some people live with, you know, lupus, or, you know, you know what I mean? I, I had to make this part of my life, and I had to make sure, I had to have a conversation with myself as to, okay, well, you know, there were a couple times where I 
especially at the beginning when I first got the news and I, I, I cried about it. But I thought, well, okay, I'm going to get this out of my system. I'm going to cry about this. But then I'm going to, then at a certain point, I'm not going to cry about this anymore, you know. <laughs> and I certainly didn't want my daughter or my family to see me cry about this because I think they, that would have worried them, although they certainly would have understood. I, I mean, with, you know, that's just me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just kind of had to learn, okay, uh, life is precious and, uh, you know, you better enjoy yourself because you just, there are no guarantees. And I knew that there was, there were no guarantees, but by the same token, I realized that there's no guarantee for anybody that they're going to be, you know, alive the next day, you know, um, so, yeah, you, I just kind of decided I learned to live with it. And, you know, I trusted my doctor and he was watching over me and he did all these scans and all this kind of stuff. You know, that became just a way of life. And there were times where, yeah, you a scan, you know, you got nervous that they were going to find something worse. But then when you'd had it, and you found that, oh, it's okay. It's like, okay, kind of let you know, well, oh, okay, right now, everything's fine, you know. Um, so you just kind of learn to make those things part of your, just the way it is. I, you know, I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> I am I feel like I'm asking you to explain a lot. So I think you're doing it much better than I would have. <laughs> well, you know, you just never know. Yeah. Um, you just don't know what you're going to do, but I'm kind of a person that I like to look at the positive side of things. Although I am basically a worrywart. <laughs> I really am. You know, I miss anxiety and I have to plan, well, what if this, what if this, what if this happens? You know, I have a tendency to do that. But for some reason, it's like, well, you know, and, and again, I had to come to the point where, okay, you're doing absolutely everything you can do. You really have no control over where this is going to go other than doing what you're doing. No matter what I did, I knew that I could follow all the rules and it could turn out to be bad or mm -hmm. I could follow all the rules. And basically, you have to kind of live and let live sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, because what could I have done? You know, what could I have done to stop it? You know, I was never a smoker. I, you know, I mean, as I say, I was, you know, always tried to exercise and be as healthy as I could be. And, you know, here I was, I had nothing to do with me. And I figured I just had to just take things as they came. And there was this, you know, at a certain point, you have no control. It, things are going to be what they're going to be. So that's kind of where I was at. Well, Mary, it's been absolutely wonderful getting to chat with you, getting to hear your story and hearing how you kind of came into Andy's orbit or Andy came into your orbit. I, I, I really appreciate you taking time out this evening to chat with me. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I think I said to you in the email, I always felt that there was unfinished business and this is... Some this is great that I'm able to do this, and so I think now you know why Andy may have chosen me. Yeah, I'm definitely certain that as to why he wanted to include you in this podcast. 
you don't happen to have the original uh, story that you wrote for him, do you? It would be on Edgerton Life. All right. I, I will make sure we link to that and include that when we, when we release this podcast. Well, obviously, you, you and he went through a lot together and had quite a connection. He was a sweet guy, and uh, it was very tragic. But by the same token, I mean, he basically, you know, he left quite a legacy. There are a lot of people who, you know, leave this world, and they don't have as much love and <laughs> as he had, and, um, and they haven't done as much as he did in his short time on Earth. And that... Could also be the fact that I, I think I kind of get the sense that his parents were such nice people. Oh, they're great. So basically, you know, it's obvious that he was raised properly. <laughs> <laughs> they raised him well. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much again. It was so wonderful hearing your uplifting story. And I, I also really cool. I, I, I've been through the Chicago area. Awesome to hear about the great work that Rush was doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking. I, I said this was only going to be an hour, uh, an hour thing. And I think you gave me two hours. So I really oh, appreciate my. it. <laughs> well, part, of it was tech, part of it was technology but uh, <laughs> <okay. laughs> no. well thanks thank you uh, thank you uh, and uh thanks to your husband for helping us work through that okie doke absolutely and it was nice to actually meet you too jess so anytime give me a call <laughs> let me Will know do. how you're doing <laughs> i would love to keep you posted and likewise all righty all right take care mary all righty bye-bye bye-bye